Now, Nehemiah had arrived back in Jerusalem with a plan and a purpose. I say arrived back. He arrived in Jerusalem, for remember, he had been born in exile. He wanted to see the walls rebuilt. But how was he going to carry out this purpose? Now, we need to, re- to recognise that there were substantial difficulties in his path. The work to be carried out was overwhelming. Let me just give you a wee idea of what this rebuilding task was like. It was not just rebuilding a ruined house. It was re-establishing a whole city wall. Now the length of the wall around Jerusalem was 4,018 metres. Now for those of my vintage who are not comfortable with metres, that's about two and a half miles. The average height of the walls was 12 metres. That's 39.37 feet. The average thickness of the wall was 2.5 metres. That's 8.2 feet. It was a massive undertaking. And these walls were all broken down. Nehemiah was largely unknown in the city. He hadn't lived there. He hadn't held position in the city. He was, to all intents and purposes, he was a stranger in the city. He had, as far as we understand, limited construction experience. He was an official in the king's palace. He knew already that he would face opposition. Verse 10 of chapter 2, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So he knew that he was going to face opposition. This would be a daunting task for anybody. So how did he go about it? Now the first thing that we notice is he made a realistic assessment. A realistic assessment. Now, when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, he did not immediately call together the leaders of the people to discuss what had to be done. His work began quietly and secretly. He didn't immediately call a press conference and announce a great plan of rebuilding and to seek funding from all and sundry. 
perhaps the way we would do. He went out at night with a few trusted men to see for himself exactly what state the walls of the city were in. He walked around the city from west anti-clockwise, carefully inspecting. Now, the word that's used there is an interesting one. It means probing a wound to see the extent of the damage. Probing a wound to see the extent of the damage. In other words, he was examining the situation very, very carefully. So he would know exactly how much work there was to be done. Now, let's step back a bit. There was much that was good in Jerusalem. Nehemiah could have focused attention upon that. The people were back in Judah. The exile was over. The temple had been rebuilt. Sacrifice and worship were being conducted. There was much to be thankful for in Jerusalem. But sometimes it's necessary to see what is wrong. And that's what Nehemiah did. There are unfortunately some within the church who only see what's wrong. But that's not the message from Nehemiah. We must, like Nehemiah, look at the broken down towers, the burned gates, and carefully study what is wrong. Now, the walls of our Jerusalem, and if we take that as being the professing church, the walls of our Jerusalem are broken down. The gates of our Jerusalem have been burned with fire. There is false doctrine. There is immorality, there is a lack of zeal, a lack of evangelism in the professing church. But not amongst us, no. That doesn't happen with us, does it? Oh yes, it does. Our walls need rebuilding. A few years ago, there was a booklet produced, Rebuilding the Walls. And at, this, at Synod this year, congregations were urged to look at that again, to rebuild the walls of our Jerusalem. But in order to do that, we need to carefully examine and see what is wrong. But only... And I stress this, only if we have the heart, the prayer, the vision, and the passion 
to be used of God to put it right. God is not concerned that we should look at the broken down walls and shake our heads and say, what a shame. It's easy to do that. What God wants from us, men and women, who look at the broken down walls, who look at the burned gates and say, we need to do something about this. We need to get this sorted out. Alan Redpath puts it very well when he says this. It is utter folly to refuse to believe that things are as bad as they really are. It is vital in any undertaking for God to know the worst. For whenever there is a wonderful movement of the Holy Spirit... It begins with someone like Nehemiah who is bold enough to look at facts, to diagnose them, and then to rise to the task. So let's start by looking at our own congregation. Let us start by making a realistic assessment of our own congregation. We can look around and say, isn't it wonderful? The church is nearly full on a Sabbath morning. We've had new people coming. Things seem to be okay. But we've also had people leaving. If God was to come down and examine this congregation, as he did the seven churches in Asia, what would he see? There would surely be things to be commended. There is faithful preaching of the word in this congregation. There are faithful elders and deacons. There are faithful Sabbath school teachers. Yes, Like in Jerusalem, there's much positive. But let us make sure we never let the positive obscure those things that need to be done. Nehemiah could have looked at Jerusalem and said, It's fine. Look, worship's going on. The temple's there. People are coming. They're bringing their sacrifices. Everything's fine. But Nehemiah wanted to see what was wrong, not just what was right. And that's what we need to do. And we need to do it starting here. This is our Jerusalem, not just the whole church, but this part of God's church. We are to make a realistic assessment The second thing that we have here is a reasonable approach. A reasonable approach. Nehemiah goes round the entire wall. He examines, he looks, 
In places it was difficult. The scripture says that there were places where his, his donkey or whatever it was he was riding couldn't actually go because it was so blocked up with rubbish. So Nehemiah goes round. He makes this realistic assessment. And then, and only then, he turns to the leaders of the people to make them aware of the situation. And in his approach, Nehemiah demonstrated great wisdom. Wisdom in these ways. First of all, he did not blame the leaders of the people for sitting around decade after decade simply accepting that nothing could be done. He didn't say to them, what have you been doing for these last 90 years? Why are the walls in this situation? Attributing blame like that really wouldn't advance his cause at all. Look at what he says. <clears throat> the officials did not know where I had gone, what I was doing. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let's build the wall of Jerusalem. So what Nehemiah does, he points out clearly and what was clearly evident to them, you see the bad situation we're in. Look around you. You can see the state we're in. And I wonder if we should say to one another, you see the state we're in. You see the situation that obtains in this congregation or to make it wider to our denomination. You see the situation that we're in. How many of our congregations in our church, how many of our congregations would have a congregation like this this morning? Very few. As you know, for the last number of months, I've been preaching here, there, and yonder in different places throughout the church. Sometimes you go to congregations and on a Sabbath morning, the congregation barely reaches into double figures. And it certainly gets nowhere near treble figures so we say look at the situation look at the look at the situation we're in as Nehemiah said you see the situation you know it you've got friends and relatives in very small congregations you see the situation we're in 
That was his approach. He asked for their help and support. He said, come, let us rebuild. This was not something that Nehemiah was going to do. This was going to be a joint project for the people of God. Come, let us build. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't say to them, you'd better get up and do something. He said, we will do something. Let us rebuild. And then he gave a clear reason for rebuilding. So that we will no longer be a reproach. God's name, God's cause, God's people were being despised. You see, nations round about would know the history of Jerusalem, God's city. And now they could walk past and they could see the walls lying ruined decade after decade. they would see that God's city was in a mess and they would make fun of God's people and they would make fun of God. Who is this great God? Look at his city. Look at his people. They're in a mess. And Nehemiah wanted to rebuild the city so that God's name would no longer be reproached. Just like David. You remember when he went out to face Goliath? His main concern was that God's name was being mocked by these infidel Philistines. And so he wants to avenge God's name and honor God. I wonder, I wonder how the ungodly look at the RP church. I wonder how they look at our congregation. If God was as powerful as they say he is, would they not be building a new church to hold all the people that would want to come in? If what they say is true, Nehemiah was concerned that God's name would no longer be reproached. And then fourthly, he encouraged them by telling them of how God had blessed him and had made the heathen king support the rebuilding project. He went back in time and he said, look what God has done for us already. I was a servant of the king and the king sent me back here. The king gave me wood from his forest. The king opened the way for me. Not because I'm some great person but because God blessed me. Because God did it. And can we not look back 
on the great things that God has done for us as individuals and as a congregation and take courage and heart from what God has done because God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And the response of the people was immediate and positive. Not only did they say that they would arise and build, but they actively put their hand to the good work. Now the Church of Jesus Christ has a similar task to that facing Nehemiah. There has been so much devastation caused within the professing church by laxity in doctrine, discipline, and practice, that it's very easy to simply believe that it's always going to be like this. Like Nehemiah, we need to make a realistic assessment, realize that it is a work for all of God's people, not just the elders, not just the deacons, not just the minister. It's a work that needs to be done by all of God's people. Acknowledge that it is the glory and honor of God that is at stake. Surely we don't want to see a large and flourishing congregation simply so that will make us feel good. Surely we want to see the church grow so that God's name will be glorified, so that Christ will be exalted amongst the people. And we trust in the God who has been good to us in the past and determined to put our hands to the good work. So that's a reasonable approach that Nehemiah made. A realistic assessment, a reasonable approach, and thirdly, a reaction anticipated. A reaction anticipated. No sooner had the officials and the people put their hands to the good work than the opposition arose. And it should be no surprise that as soon as God's people become enthusiastic about working for God, the devil will stir up his agents to oppose it. And the opposition to Nehemiah came from the very same people who had been so displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. We'll meet these men throughout the book of Nehemiah. Tobiah appears to have been a man of influence. If you turn to chapter 13 and verse 4, you'll see that he had influence. Now the name Tobiah means Yahweh or God is good. Imagine. A man with the name of God is good sets out to oppose the work of God. His companion, Sanballat, 
was connected to the priestly families in Jerusalem. You see that in chapter 13 and verse 28. He was also an influential man. Described in one ancient document from this period as governor of Samaria. So he was a man that had great influence in civil society. Now it was no doubt disappointing for Nehemiah that the Jewish leaders, uh, Nehemiah and the Jewish leaders, to get opposition from within their own community. But it is often the case that those who are quite content with the status quo will resist those who seek to do something for God and will often use the same tactics used by Tobiah and Sanballat, namely that of mockery and division. What is this thing that you're doing? And it suggests that it was a foolish enterprise and bound to fail. And they further sought to suggest that what Nehemiah was doing would bring the opposition of the king. Mockery, misinformation, and lies are often a part of the strategy of those who would oppose anything that would advance the cause of Christ. We must never forget that we are engaged in a spiritual warfare. We are being opposed by the one who is the father of lies, who from the beginning has tried to undermine the confidence of the people of God in the word and the will of God in the very Garden of Eden. What did the devil say? Yea, hath God said? Has God really said? Seeking to create doubt in the veracity of the word of God. And we get that all the time when we say to people what the word of God says, they either seek to say it doesn't say that, to contradict that, or they say, so what? So what? What does the word of God, which you say is the word of God, what does that mean to me? The devil always uses the same tactics. Now it's interesting, and with this I finish, it's interesting that Nehemiah didn't seek to answer the accusations of Tobiah and Sambalat by explaining exactly how he was going to carry out the work or even to show them the letter that he had from the king. He could simply have produced this letter and said, look here, here's the permission of the king. But he didn't do that. He doubtless realized that had he done so, they would only have come up with 
further foolish objections. Rather than engage in fruitless discussion, Nehemiah made two confident and striking statements. He says, first of all, the God of heaven will give us success. Here is an amazing avowal of confidence in God. He knew that he had been sent by God to do God's work. Confidence in God. The God of heaven will give us success. Not the God of heaven is able to give us success. Not the God of heaven might give us success. The God of heaven will give us success. And where does his confidence come from? He knew that God had given him a mission. He knew that he had been sent by God to do God's work. And the feeble mockery and threats of a couple of self-important officials was not going to deter him. It is the same confidence shown by the apostles in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than men. That's the first dramatic statement. Do we have similar confidence in God? Do we believe that God will give us success? Because we're doing his work. We're doing it in his name. And we're doing it for his glory. God will give us success. The second thing he says is, we his servants will arise and build. Tobiah and Sanballat may have thought they were on solid ground in their opposition because they were servants of the king and they were sure that this work would not have his approval. Nehemiah doesn't correct their misapprehension but appeals to a much higher authority. We are the servants of God. We are doing his work. When God authorizes his servants to work, there is not a power on earth or in heaven that can prevent them. We will build. When we go out with the gospel of Christ, when we speak to people on the street, when we speak to them in our homes, Do we believe that God will give us success because we are doing his work for his glory? We will arise and build. Nothing will prevent us. And then, lastly, Nehemiah makes a dramatic statement. You have no portion, no right, no memorial, in Jerusalem. We will build 
but it has nothing whatsoever to do with you. Nehemiah was declaring with great boldness that he was building the city of God where his name would be honoured and glorified and that those who opposed the work would have no place in it. And this is a solemn message for those within the professing church of Christ who constantly criticize and seek to hold back spiritual growth and outreach. Like Tobiah and Sanballat, they may reside within the organized church as they did in Jerusalem, but they have no real lot part in it. They may be there within the church, within the organized church, but they have no part in it, just like Sanballat and Tobiah. So Nehemiah begins the work. And in the will of God, this evening, we will have a look at how that work was commenced. Amen.